From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we have Mac McClarty. He's really an incredible story. He was born and raised in a small town in Arkansas called Hope, where in kindergarten, he met a young classmate named Bill Clinton. We all know the story of Bill Clinton, but like President Clinton, Mac has been a huge success in his own right. He was in the state legislature at age 23, and he was CEO of a publicly traded energy company at age 37. When Governor Clinton became President Clinton, Mac became chief of staff to the president. After the White House, he founded a strategic advisory business, and he still runs a large transportation company, which is now a fourth-generation family business. Now, for full disclosure for our listeners, Mac's been a good friend and mentor to me for almost 30 years. He's a rare person who combines world-class talent and integrity with an equal amount of humility and kindness. But don't take it from me. Here's what President Clinton said about Mac McClarty. Mac represents to me everything that is good and decent in public service. Honesty and civility, fidelity and kindness aren't just words to him. They're a way of life. So, Mac... Thanks for being here. Thanks for your friendship. And thanks for being on Transition Lab. Hey, the pleasure's mine. In fact, it's a privilege to be with you because I really uh, believe in the, the timely, important work you're doing with your Transition Lab. I commend you. You've had quite a career yourself. Thank you, Mac. But let me ask you, when you and Bill Clinton were five years old in Miss Mary's kindergarten, who did she think was going to be more successful? But before answering me, let's hear what Bill Clinton said. As long as I've known him, He's always been well-liked and well-respected by everybody. And frankly, I still resent it. (laughs) So, Mac, who was going to be more successful when you were in kindergarten? Well, I think Mrs. Uh, Mary Perkins pulled for all of us uh, and hoped there'd be a lot of successes from her class. I still have very relatively vivid memories about that kindergarten setting, even though I was five or six years old, uh, and have stayed in touch with a lot of those classmates, including, of course, President Clinton. So I think we were... We're all pulling for each other. I don't think there was there was certainly dreams that we all had, but but not a sense of competition. I think she hoped for for successes from a lot of us, and knowing our class, I, I think that was largely achieved. Well, let's fast forward to 1992, and maybe for our listeners, just remind people what was going on in the country during that election, because the issues then could not be more different than the issues we're seeing today. Dave, that's true. It was a very uh, unique political landscape, which most presidential elections uh, are, certainly. Uh, President George H.W. Bush had been enormously popular after a successful desert storm. His approval ratings approached 90 percent, but the economy had started to stall. There there was increasing unemployment, and there was a sense in the country, not, not unlike perhaps when President or Senator Kennedy ran, that people wanted change. They at least wanted to consider a change of direction. You'd have President Reagan for eight years, now President George H.W. Bush for four. That's 12 years. There was this sense that we might can do better, and Governor Clinton captured that feeling with his new Democrat uh, approach to, to governing his record as governor of Arkansas. He had uh, been, been active establishing relationships around the country, And so as the economy uh, continued to get a bit weaker, Governor Clinton, candidate Clinton, really made an effort to hone in on that. And 
Governor Clinton got momentum and he was elected. I think what it showed, Ross Perot got 19 percent, unusual for a third party candidate to get mm-hmm. that much of a vote. But it, it suggested to me that 60 percent plus of the country wanted change, but they didn't want radical change. They wanted thoughtful, measured, real change, but but done in a careful, careful manner. And I, I think that was the tenor of the election in 1992, Dave. Well, Mac, what was incredible is that in that year, unemployment was 8%. Interest rates were very high. It cost more than 10% to get a mortgage or an auto loan. The deficit was exploding. So it was a very, very different set of issues than we're dealing with today. Let's pivot to the subject of this podcast, transitions. This may be a kind of hard conversation for you and I, because we're both, frankly, Clinton loyalists. We think he was a great president. But his transition, well, it wasn't the best transition ever. In fact, in President Clinton's own book, he was pretty critical of himself. He said, quote, I spent hardly any time on the White House staff, and I gave almost no thought to how to keep the public's focus on the most important priorities, which was obviously the economy. So, Mac, maybe you could talk about what type of transition work was done before the election in case Governor Clinton became President Clinton. Dave, I think Governor Clinton had a strong feeling, and it was was understandable even with the benefit of history, that he did not want to be seen as an underdog candidate, uh, a younger uh, candidate who who was already beginning to measure the drapes in the Oval Office. At that time, I was chairman and chief executive of the New York Stock Exchange Natural Gas Company, as you noted in your introduction, uh, while I was part of the campaign in terms of developing economic policy and trying to be supportive of a lifelong friend and governor of our home state, I was certainly not active in the day-to-day campaign. So I think uh, really that that was the essence of it. But what really has changed, Dave, is after 9-11, there just became a totally different attitude about transitions. And now I think the environment we're in demands uh, really thoughtful, active transition planning. The government even, uh, you know, has funding support for that office support. And my goodness, that, that is that is a big change and a good one. But that was not the case in 1992. One of the things that President Clinton reflected on in his memoirs, and he said he could have done it better, was that he spent most of his time focused on the cabinet and not the White House. Transition experts would all say today that best practice would be to focus on the White House staff first and then the cabinet. Why do you think he did the opposite? Well, again, I think this was really a matter of, of, of kind of the song, Time Won't Let Me. There was just a real crunch uh, after the election uh, that there just was such a limited time between November 5th and raising your hand on uh, January 20th to get all of the, the apparatus of government in place, as well as respond to so many well-wishers, meet with members of Congress, so many stakeholders, including world leaders. And of course, he had the economic summit uh, in there, which you remember, and I know we'll get to that probably later in our conversation here. So I think he felt that the cabinet was critically important. Uh, He had been a governor. He he saw the importance of of governing and, and having people that could lead certain initiatives but I think you make a very fair point. You either have to do them simultaneously or perhaps even better, focus on the White House staff first and then quickly move the cabinet. But it was really a matter there was just not enough work done before the election. 
and you, once you get behind, it just does not leave you any room to catch up. That's a good point. Getting behind, you can never catch up. Professor John Burke, who was written extensively on transitions, he described the post-election meetings that you participated in, in the governor's mansion. I think it was in the governor's kitchen, where there were just six people in the room. You, President Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, Vice President Gore, our friend Bruce Lindsay, and the Vice President's Chief of Staff, Roy Neal. And basically, along with Warren Christopher, you sat there for hours and hours, day after day, going through the cabinet and selecting them. So what were those meetings like? Well, they were pretty stimulating, and they were long, (laughs) Uh, and they were important. Uh, When Governor Clinton was elected uh, election night, I was sitting by his mother, actually, uh, there at the old state house, and he pointed to me and said, I need to see you tomorrow. And I really uh, did not think too much about that. I had been named to the transition committee. Uh, Mickey Cantor was chairman of that. It was about eight of us, as I recall, on that on that group. Um, and we'd had a couple of meetings, but again, not uh, in any depth or, or serious or focused manner in, with the benefit of, of hindsight. The next day, I did go by the governor's mansion to see President-elect Clinton 101, of course, conveyed my congratulations and just heartfelt feelings mm-hmm. about about what he had accomplished. Of course, it was a big moment for our state and just a, a lifelong friend. It was, you know, a special special and meaningful moment. Mac, President Clinton wrote in his book that you tried to persuade him not to appoint you as chief of staff. You told him that he should appoint someone that has more Washington experience and that you want to focus on economic issues. Now, you're a persuasive guy, but you just couldn't persuade him not to pick you? Well, I tried to be, uh, you know, very, very honest with President-elect and, again, a lifelong friend. Uh, and so we we did have a serious exchange about kind of why he thought I was the best person under the circumstances and really kind of the pros and cons of that as we were thinking through it. I think what it really boiled down to in his mind is is he wanted someone that, uh, at least at the beginning, that he knew and trusted, uh, felt like that would give him very honest and direct advice and counsel and be kind of a check, a reality check uh, that was consistent with his, someone who was consistent with his political philosophy, which was the new Democrat philosophy. He knew uh, in my activities as a member of the National Democratic Committee uh, under Robert Strauss during President Carter's years, and then the natural gas business that I had been very active uh, with the Senate and the House. So I had good relations on both sides of the aisle in Congress. And so he just really felt like that to get his presidential effort launched, he wanted someone that he was comfortable with, knew and trusted, and felt like could provide him with not only support, but really serious and uh, direct advice, but but to, to give that in the right way and, and to have a level of trust. So I think that was the essence of it. One of the things you mentioned was the economic summit. Our friend, and in my view, one of the most successful trade negotiators in U.S. history, Mickey Cantor, he was asked to pull together 150 or so business people, labor leaders, and others to a summit in Arkansas to focus on the economy. And it was a big success. Some critics said afterwards that the summit was a mistake, that it took Governor Clinton's time and attention away from pulling together his team pulling together his government. In hindsight, do you think having the summit was the right thing to do, or maybe he should have just focused on building the government? <laughs> well, hindsight's a great substitute for wisdom, as we all know. <laughs> uh, 
I, I think more fundamentally, Dave, the, the real answer is to begin the transition process planning much earlier and in a very formal way. And for the candidate, uh, several months before the election, to really feel that that's a primary responsibility to spend some time and focus on that and have largely uh, those elements of a transition, including personnel, at least a framework of personnel in place. Because inevitably, Dave, it goes back to your earlier point about the message. Uh, here's a pres president, who, president-elect, who has only received 43% of the vote. He was not well known to, to much of the country. A lot of the country kind of said, I'll take a chance on this fellow and see how he does. I do want to change. So it's important that he continues to, to engage in a public manner. And again, he has so much, uh, so much demands on that during that time period. So I think the economic summit did put forward that President-elect Clinton was and Vice President-elect Gore were reaching out to a broad range of leaders in the country uh, and really getting their best views and opinions and thoughts about how to get this economy going. So I don't really fault the economic summit. I think it was a good messaging event, and I think it was a good substantive event. Where it, uh, where the complication was, it did. You know, there's only only so much time, and it did take away from a critically needed time uh, to choose a White House staff, to choose the cabinet, and to continue to discharge so many other responsibilities, including personal ones. You've got to remember that President-elect Clinton and Hillary and Chelsea were moving from Little Rock to Washington. So there's a lot of saying goodbye to friends and a uh, time of reflection. So it's just one of those periods that, you know, is very, very demanding. President Clinton made his first cabinet appointments on December 10th, a little over a month after the election. Senator Lloyd Benson, who was chairman of the Finance Committee, became Treasury Secretary. Leon Panetta, who was chairman of the Budget Committee, became OMB Director. Bob Rubin, who was head of Goldman Sachs, became the head of the NEC. That's really an all-star team. Let's listen to the announcement. My first appointment intentionally is the Secretary of the Treasury. In filling this post, I wanted someone who had the unique capacity to command the respect of Wall Street while showing an unrelenting concern for the Americans who make their living on Main Street. When Lloyd Benson agreed to serve as Secretary of the Treasury, it is safe to say I succeeded. Two questions on that. Why did Governor Clinton choose to announce his economic team first? And second is, can you imagine today a Democratic president-elect talking about Wall Street before talking about Main Street? Well, it was a different time and place. I, I think, Dave, the announcement of the economic team, given the campaign and its focus, was logical and proper, and I think played well, both politically and substantially. Uh, I was certainly proud that, that those people that you just named, very distinguished, capable uh, leaders, uh, that I had recommended all of them uh, in a strong uh, in our cabinet discussions. I knew them well, with the exception of Leon and Alice Rivlin, who served as Leon's deputy, but I knew Leon frankly by reputation. So I think that was a logical and strong statement to make and was very well received both in the United States, but also around the world. And that was critical because President-elect Clinton had a formulation to be strong abroad. We first have to be strong at home and then to remain strong at home, we have to be engaged abroad. So I think this sent the right 
signal, as you, you noted. It was a different time and place. On the other hand, Dave, you, you'll recall the campaign with Governor Clinton was putting people first. Mm-hmm. And President Clinton is a superb communicator, connects with people, just to state the obvious here. So I, I don't think you had the vulnerability. Uh, this is kind of like Nixon going to China or something that, you know, President-elect Clinton, I think, had the credibility with the people of the country that he he truly cared about him. He was putting them first, and he felt like he, he was just totally devoted and dedicated to get the economy back on track, and here's how he's going to do that. And I think history history will judge that he, he fulfilled that promise. Yeah, I agree. Two things were particularly notable about his transition. One is that he was very focused on selecting the most diverse cabinet ever, which he did. And second is he created the National Economic Council, the NEC, which put economic issues on par with national security issues. And that was perhaps the most significant change in the White House structure since 1947 when the NSC was created. So, Mac, why were these two things such a big priority for President Clinton? Uh, neither were a surprise to me, number one. He, he had discussed the National Economic Council concept with me. He had actually discussed it during the campaign. Uh, I was strongly for it. He felt like international economic issues had become foreign policy issues and foreign policy issues, traditional foreign policy issues had become economic uh, issues. There, were, there was an intertwining. I think he was absolutely right in that regard. We got a lot of criticism for establishing the NEC, Dave. It's kind of hard to remember after all these years, but it was another level of bureaucracy and so mm-hmm. forth. It was a change, but I think uh, it really worked out superbly. Um, I think as far as the diversity, uh, you know, I, Bill Clinton and I grew up at the same time, went to Boy State together, uh, had worked together in, in Arkansas and national politics, and we were very much committed to the New South and and, and really, uh, you know, an inclusive uh, administration reflecting uh, his values and, and and how he had run his campaign. So I, I think that was to me a, a kind of a foregone conclusion. I was not the least bit surprised by that. I would have been surprised otherwise. One of the things that's so gut-wrenching about transitions is how difficult they are for the people involved. People have anxiety. They want to know what they're going to do. Why is this person getting a call and not me? And I read another book which quoted our friend D.D. Myers, who became press secretary, and she said the transition was the worst time in her entire association with the Clinton campaign and the Clinton presidency. It was just too uncertain a time, lots of anxiety. Nobody knew who was in. Nobody knew who was out. So is that type of stress and anxiety inevitable in every transition? Or are there things that the president-elect and his team can do to make it a little easier on the people that put their hearts and souls into a campaign? Well, Dave, listening to some of your other interviews with some very knowledgeable and capable people whom I know and and like and respect greatly, I think you've got it right. Uh, Transitions are inevitably challenging, difficult, complicated, and messy. I think some of that, a lot of that can be mitigated with, again, a much longer planning cycle, which I think now is accepted. And that, that's absolutely key to avoiding some of the uh, missteps, mistakes, and challenges that we had in the Clinton administration. It's a different time and place. I think now people expect a, a very thoughtful, serious transition effort. That's number one. Number two, you make a, an excellent point. There's just no question you are dramatically shifting from campaigning to governing. Now, that's the convergence you want. You want as smooth and seamless a transition from the campaign to governing 
when the president uh, raises his right hand or she raises her right hand on January 20th at inaugural. Uh, that's a big challenge. It's much easier said than done to use a familiar cliche. Uh, but I, I think that that's, that's really um, at the heart of people who had given one or two years of their lives. A lot of them are younger people, have high expectations. I think to, to kind of manage that, I think it takes a recognition of it, Dave, which is one of the reasons I think your transition lab, the work you're doing is so important. And I think it takes a commitment on the part of the candidate to, to speak thoughtfully and, and directly to the, to the campaign, the people that are involved in this campaign, not just at the senior level, but throughout the campaign, these young people who are given their lives and set expectations properly. Okay, so the transition was a little bumpy. And then President Clinton takes the oath of office. During the campaign, he was laser focused on the economy, as you said. But then in the first two weeks of the administration, another issue bubbled up and it took over everything else in the first two weeks. And that was the issue of gays in the military. Can you tell us how that happened? Well, it certainly got us off track, and you make, make exactly the right point. Campaigns by nature, Dave, are much more freewheeling. And you had a lot of young people in, 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 in Governor Clinton's campaign, and frankly, not just they, but I think everyone associated with the campaign. It's pretty natural to have a, a touch or maybe more than a touch of hubris when someone is elected president of the United States and those around him that have helped him do that. Uh, we beat the opposition. We, you know, we're we're now in charge, and we're going to do it our way. Uh, I think um, a bit more modesty is called for in transitions uh, and in governing, particularly the first year. And I think that that was a was an element in some of these uh, snafus, mistakes, uh, you know, getting off message. And, and I think, you know, I think President Clinton quickly realized he had to be much more measured in his comments as president than he was as a candidate. I mean, President Clinton is a great communicator, but sometimes he, he likes to think out loud a bit more than he should, and he, he recognized that. So that's really how the gays in the military, I think, began. I think it, it, it kind of, instead of tamping that down, he kind of made a response, and it kind of took off as an issue. I do think there was a feeling that this was a, an administration that had come from the outside as a governor from a southern state and ran as not quite an insurgent campaign, but certainly ran as, as, as a, not as a Washington establishment candidate. So I think that created some natural and pretty serious tension with the press. And that led to some of these other snafus, mistakes. And that really, we, we paid a price for that. Well, those were challenging times. A couple of weeks ago, we had Professor Michael Nelson on the podcast. He's an expert on the presidency. And he said, President Clinton had one of the worst transitions ever of any modern president, but he had the most important trait for any successful president, which is the interest in and ability to learn. And that trait made him one of the best two-term presidents in, mo in the modern presidency. Let me ask you a personal question, which is, those were difficult days. How did you deal with the pressure of the moment and keep it together at the time? It was a demanding period. I, I think, Dave, I was reasonably prepared for that kind of pressure and stress, although there's nothing like working uh, in the White House and particularly in the chief javelin catcher position, chief of staff position. You, you really have to 
keep a sense of perspective about what you're trying to accomplish, why you came to Washington to do a job that you were asked to do, and all you can do is, is your very best to keep your eye, you know, truly on the prize. Are we making progress toward getting our economic plan passed or the Family Medical Leave Act, whatever the legislative issue of the day was? Are we positioning the president correctly to meet these world leaders? Are we engaging with governors? All these constituencies that you have, including supporters and people that didn't support you. So you just really have to do your job and just focus on the task at hand. And I tried to not take some of the criticism either of the administration or of me personally. That's hard to do. And I Mm -hmm. say I always Mm -hmm. succeeded, but I certainly made an effort to try to separate uh, a feeling that that was directed just personally at me. That's just part of the landscape. And I, I think I was realistic about that when we, when we entered uh, when we entered the White House, but it is demanding, and you also have to take kind of physical care of yourself, Dave. Uh, and and Donna, my wife, was just such a great supportive partner. She has been for fifty plus years now, uh, so that was a was a great help. So you you try to deal with that as best you can, but you really try to remember the mission, why you went there to serve the American people. Well, you mentioned the economic package. That was a huge success. It cut the deficit by $500 billion. It sent an important signal to the bond market, which lowered interest rates. It increased investment. That package won by one vote in the House. And the congresswoman that cast the deciding vote ended up losing her election in the next midterm. What would have happened to the Clinton presidency if you had lost that vote? Well, I have said before, it was... Uh a uh, life and death matter that may be uh, a bit uh, a bit overstated but uh, there's just no question that president clinton's economic plan was the pillar the foundation of his first year in the presidency that's that's what the campaign had been about and that's what he had been so focused on both in the campaign and, and we got to the white house and so had we not been successful in passing that and then it, it had not resulted not only in the deficit, uh, but also a tremendous lift in job creation and wage gains at all levels, at all levels and all uh, aspects of, of society. That, that, to me, was the real foundation of the Clinton presidency. Mac, what's interesting is despite the challenging transition, if you look back on that first year, he had more appointments in the first 100 days than Reagan or Bush. He appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. He brought Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin together. NAFTA, National Service, the Brady Bill, the economic package, it was just a huge success. Which of these do you think had the biggest impact on the perceptions of President Clinton in the first year? That's an insightful question, and I think an important one. Uh, I would answer it in two ways. One, I think the economic plan had to be the most important. That was, again, the pillar I really was not persuaded we could balance the budget, nor was Bob Rubin or Lloyd Benson. We felt like we could slow the growth of the deficit, but we were not convinced that we could balance the budget. Uh, That just was almost uh, beyond reach. And what happened is once people got confidence in the economy, we were very fortunate that we had moderate energy prices and increase in productivity that helped helped achieve growth in the economy without inflation, but you got the momentum going in a positive way with job creation, low unemployment, rising wages, and all of a sudden, we really had to follow momentum. 
I think the other point that was so important the first year was for President Clinton to step on the world stage in a in a confident statesmanlike manner. And we really worked at that. And if you go back the first year, really almost through his entire presidency, he made very few missteps on the world stage and established really enduring deep relationships with leaders around the world. And that really served him well. Mac, knowing what you know now, what do you wish you knew when you became <laughs> chief of staff? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I think, uh, Dave, a couple of, a couple of things. One, I, I just really reemphasize my core point. I think transitions that you're working so thoughtfully and, and seriously on have changed in terms of expectations and understanding. So I think a formal transition planning effort well in advance of the election is just absolutely imperative, both from a national security standpoint and from a economic security standpoint. That That's obviously one I wish I would have known. Secondly, um, there, there's no question that in politics and particularly uh, in the first year of any presidency, that perception is reality. Uh, so I think you've got to really be focused uh, in a serious, thoughtful way about how you keep your message um, in, in front of the American people and the world more broadly. Now, that's not always possible to do because you're going to have what Tom Brokaw referred to as UFOs of unforeseen occurrences, a hurricane, a international conflict or, or whatever. But I think uh, those are the two things in retrospect that I would, would note to any incoming uh, president and, and chief of staff and, and, and White House team. Well, let's close with a lightning round, Mac. All right. One word answers. You ready? Okay. Let me take a deep breath. Yes, sir. Ready to go. Okay. What was your best moment you had in your years at the White House? Passing the economic plan was the best moment. In, really, my feeling that that really was the foundation we needed to get in place. But I think to build on that, Dave, in public service, when you meet someone who has benefited from welfare to work or who has benefited from Family Medical Leave Act and they or has benefited from the economic plan and they tell you about that, that's really why you go to Washington. So when you see firsthand how you really have been able to have the opportunity, rare opportunity to put people first and help them, that, that's that's the most meaningful. And what was the lowest moment? Regrettably, I, I have to say, uh, it's very personal and, and sensitive, the, the loss of Vince Foster. Uh, Vince was a lifelong friend from Hope. I grew up with him. Uh, he was president of the student council the year before I was in Hope High School. Uh, he was a fine, fine man, dear friend, a very capable lawyer. And he, he just got uh, overwhelmed with some of the, uh, the criticisms and dynamics. And and we, we all miss him to this day. That was the lowest and I remember those were very, very difficult days. So this will be a hard question for you because I know you're a diplomat. You're not allowed to say President Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, or Vice President Gore. Who was the most impressive person you worked with in your days at the White House? Well, you've taken my two away there with the Vice know, President and the First Lady. <laughs> you preempted me there. Well, there were so many capable people that I had great respect for then and, and do now. I think in the cabinet, it would be Secretary Benson. In the White House, there were several people. I think I would rank Alexis Herman and Bob Rubin as, as two people I really had a special feeling for and, and admiration and respect for. Final question. What word do you think best defines Bill Clinton's presidency? 
I would say people. I mean, Bill Clinton cares about people. He, he's a people person. He connects with people and people of all uh, all ilks. And that to me is has been the secret of his success as a politician. But I think it's the real fundamental element of his being a successful president. Well, Mac McClarty, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for being on Transition Lab. Thank you for your friendship. And let me close, not with a statement from me, but a wonderful clip from President Clinton on his longtime friend and public servant, Mac McClarty. Let me say to, uh, to Mac and to Donna and to their fine sons, uh, thank you for serving America. To his family, I thank them for lending Mac to me for a little while. For a long time now, we have been friends. Now we know we are colleagues. Now we know what it's like to fight and lose and win again on behalf of the American people. It has been a wonderful experience. And again, I say that Mac McClarty is a genuinely patriotic public servant in the greatest American tradition. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.